Is it even possible anymore to engage in candid conversation with someone whose political views vary sharply from your own? What would happen if you tried? I'm Barbara Dundon for 20 by 70, and I'm here in Houston Hall on the Penn campus talking with students from Penn and Cairn University, formerly Philadelphia College of the Bible. These students just finished a two-part session moderated by dialogue experts Harris Sokoloff and our own Chris Satulo. Let's hear what they have to say. Uh, my name is Disa Swanson. I am a senior at Cairn University. Disa, tell me what this experience was like for you. I think you have people of very different worldview backgrounds and people of different political backgrounds really coming together and seeking to understand each other. And I think it was just really encouraging to see that that was possible and it was possible to be done in a civil manner because Lord knows that we don't see that today. My name is Sarah Murphy and I'm a master's student at the Penn Graduate School of Education. At the end of that conversation, people started to be a little bit more candid. Mm. What was that like for you and how did you feel? I'm going to say something that sounds really contradictory, but I swear it makes sense, which is um, it made me feel really uncomfortable, which is a very good thing. I'm a big believer, believer in the fact that discomfort is where growth happens and where real learning happens. I, you know, I'm a teacher and so I always tell my students, you know, marinate in the discomfort, like really embrace it, it's good. My name is Sawyer Witted and I go to Cairn University. I really enjoy conversations like these. I have very firm beliefs in, in certain things and a lot of that comes from my Christian faith. And so it's cool to see how other people believe certain things. Hi, my name is Imani Sellers and I go to University of Pennsylvania. Did you feel safe in this process? And if so, what made you feel safe? Um, so honestly, coming in, I did not. I was very aware of how people perceive me. Just being like a black woman here at Penn, uh, it's always on my mind when I walk into rooms. But once I introduced myself to the panel and the moderators, I felt more safe because everyone was just like wanting to get to know me. Like, oh, what do you study? What do you do here at Penn? And everyone was just like really open and nice. I'm Carmen Delgado. I go to the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education, and I'm a PhD student in the Education, Culture, and Society program. Did you feel listened to? And can you tell me what that was like to share what you did? I, I absolutely felt listened to, and it actually makes me very hopeful for what's possible in this country. When I mentioned Trump's comments about grabbing women, just the silence after I asked the question suggested to me that people were taking a moment to really think about it. And that heartens me, that people are being thoughtful. Got to say it heartens me too. Thanks, Chris, for your role in this event. Feels like it's time to toss the ball back over to you, our 20 by 70 host. What do you say? Thanks, Barbara. I am Chris Satulo, and from the Wexler Studio on the UPenn campus, this is 20 by 70, the podcast for people who expect more from Philadelphia, and in this context, from Americans, too. This time, our podcast is about political renewal in three of its aspects. We're going to look at how we can learn to talk to each other again about political things, and we're going to talk about engaging millennials in this process in a sustained, effective way. And we're going to consider whether Pennsylvania at long last 
can eliminate that bug in the operating system of democracy that is gerrymandering. But first, back to the two-part dialogue that Barbara just reported on. That initiative had students spending a lot of time on Interstate 95. First, the Penn kids traveled up to the Cairn campus in Bucks County for one session. Then Cairn students made their way down to Locust Walk for the second one. Credit two men, Professor Jonathan Zimmerman of Penn's Graduate School of Education and Paul Neal, a vice president at Cairn, for thinking up this initiative and making it happen. John, an old friend, asked my help in designing the sessions. Being no fool, or at least not a complete and utter one, I pulled onto the team Harris Sokoloff. He is my longtime colleague who co-founded the Penn Project for Civic Engagement a decade ago. Together, Harris and I set ground rules for the dialogue, designed an opening icebreaker, and came up with the sequence of three questions that propelled the students through the evening. Also in attendance at the first session at Cairn in mid-February was Rachel Wall, a professor from the University of Virginia who is doing research on political dialogue. She joins us now by phone to report on her impressions of that Cairn discussion. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Chris. So, Rachel, what was it that uh, drew you to come up to to, uh, the Philadelphia area to witness this dialogue? Sure. So it really came out of my previous work. I recently finished a book on how police respond to human rights activism and education. This was a book, uh, Just Violence, that was based on research I conducted in India. And one thing I saw in that is that the police have an enormous amount of antipathy toward activism. Uh, it really has, in many ways, a counterproductive result. And yet, education can be too conciliatory to change their views on hard issues like torture. So they became really interested in whether there was a third way to engage violent state officials. I began observing dialogues in the United States between the police and communities of color out of this interest, and this led to a more general interest in the dialogue process. So when I heard that John Zimmerman and his colleagues were organizing these dialogues among students, I asked if I could come watch. Okay, what kind of expectations did you have coming in? You were going to sit down and watch kids from an Ivy League institution talk to kids from a Christian university. What were your, what were your thoughts? Well, I came to this from the perspective of just having observed two years of dialogues between police and communities. And in that, there is such clear formal inequality that I came hoping that although these institutions are very different in many ways and students within them and between them may be unequal in different ways, there was at least a kind of formal equality uh, between students that might make for a more promising discussion and a less threatening discussion. So you sat in, uh, I think, largely at one table of the dialogue. Uh, What was your experience? Mm -hmm. Well, I really saw that there was an incredibly, almost radical openness on both sides, both in the Karen students and in the Penn students. Uh, Now, I've also been interviewing, I've interviewed about 20 students who attended the uh, first dialogue at Karen, as well as some students who attended the second dialogue at Penn. Um, So both in my observation of that small group discussion, as well as in the 20 interviews I've conducted so far with students afterward, you can see that there's this really earnest desire to understand that I think is born of a mutual horror at the state of discourse in our country today. 
Um, I think from the side of many Cairns students, some who voted for Trump, others who voted for third-party candidates, it may be born out of a sense of relative security, a feeling that their values are not as threatened in this election as they feel that they might have been in the past, which perhaps allows for more openness. Whereas on the side of those who voted for Clinton, it's, of course, the exact opposite. It's um, an openness born out of a kind of desperation, a desperate need to understand how something like this could happen, seeing their country derailed from the values that they had hoped it would represent. Um, but I think on both sides, the desire to create something more ethical and more human, humane than what we've been seeing over the last year. Okay, as Shakespeare said, the readiness is all. Um, but in terms of sitting in on the dialogue, uh, how much did you think uh, the structure of it helped, or was it mostly just the students really wanted it to go well, so they made it go well? Definitely both. And I hope you'll excuse. I'm also, I can't help but drawing on my interviews for that question as well. But so many students have talked about the structure as helping them, as making the conversation really different from other conversations that they've tried to engage in. Um, the quote that was read at the very beginning on listening, listening is uh, something along the lines of listening is the act of leaning in softly with a willingness to be changed by what one heard. Mm -hmm. Students, so many students have mentioned that quote as changing the way they approach the dialogue, coming in feeling defensive and ready to argue and hearing those words and reorienting themselves. Um, and so, and I also think that the, the three questions that were asked invited a kind of curiosity, understanding, orientation that did not invite a representation of one's position and debate. So I think the format helped a lot. Yeah, just to sort of review what went on, we asked three questions. Um, after doing an opening exercise that encouraged people to think about the multiple identities that they have and to share them with other people on the table so that hopefully um, students learn that somebody they came in regarding as the other was the same as them or similar to them in a lot of ways. But the first question, and this is something that Harris and I believe a lot, in, the more controversial or difficult the topic, the more you begin with story and not with position or argument. And the first question was just to ask the kids to talk about um, how politics were discussed or not discussed in their families growing up. And one thing we discovered, Rachel, is you saw that if you ask college students to talk about their parents, it's hard to get them to stop. <laughs> uh, the second question was um, what essentially, essentially asked, what is a question you've been dying to ask someone who voted for another candidate about why they voted the way they did? So that started treading gently onto the difficult territory. And the final question asked um, students, what issue um, was the biggest fa factor in deciding how you voted and why? And for the second session, Rachel, the one you weren't at, we kind of tweaked that question because so many uh, students said it wasn't really an issue. It was a judgment of character um, that influenced their vote. So we changed it to what factor, whether an issue or something else um, influenced your vote. And we found the second discussion actually went a lot better because the students wanted to talk so much about the character of the candidates more than particular issues. Um, what were some moments, you know, at the table you were at, you were at that stick with you that you remember? Mm. Well, there were a couple of them. Um, I think one moment was 
that was really remarkable to me was that the students got into a conversation about their views of human nature and how those views might relate to their political choices. Um, several of the Karen students shared that they believe that man is inherently, and this is naturally related to a particular kind of religious belief, but naturally sinful, naturally inclined to do bad, and that this required a certain kind of law to restrain. And I think that, one, their their insight into how their fundamental beliefs about human nature informed their political choices was impressive, but I think it also really helped Clinton supporters at the table, who were Penn students, gain insight into how their fellow students could see the world so differently from the way they do on certain issues. Um, so that was one exchange that I think was really helpful. Um, another that I think was, that I know was meaningful to both the Penn students and the Karen students at the table, because I've I've interviewed most of the students who were at my table and all of them mentioned this moment, was that there was a moment in which uh, Penn students asked the Karen students whether they think Trump is a Christian. And the Karen students resoundingly said, no, absolutely not. Um, and that was really important to the students at the table. It was really important to the Karen students because even though many of them had voted for Trump, it allowed them to clarify what they believe and why they believe it, that they aren't uh, being duped by somebody but are making a choice based on their perceptions of what is the least possible bad. Um, but it was also really important to the Penn students to see that these are thinking people who are making evaluative judgments who, again, are not just duped by somebody manipulative. So those, those were two moments where there seemed to be a kind of breakthrough on both sides. Thanks, Rachel. Again, that was Rachel Wall of the University of Virginia. And now we pause for big news. The 20 by 70 podcast actually has a sponsor, for real, and we're pretty thrilled about it. More details after this delightful musical interlude from our house band, The Miners. Philadelphia now has a growing thing called Yip. What's a Yip? It's the group known as Young Involved Philadelphia. Yip is 9,000 members strong, and it builds relationships and increases civic engagement among young Philadelphians. It promotes active citizenship and emerging leadership. Check out younginvolvedphiladelphia.org for more information and sign up for Yip's next event, an idea forum on March 22nd. As you've probably noticed while watching network TV, these days it's all about co-branding and native advertising. Characters on many shows wrap their fingers slowly and lovingly around a Coke or a Bud or run them seductively across the leather seats of a Lexus. So here, we're going to go into 20 by 70s version of that, only it's far more high-minded and erudite. You just heard our message about the wonders of young, involved Philadelphia. Now, joining David Thornburg and me in the Wexler studio for a chat about what Young Involved Philadelphia is, well, involved in, 
Here's Rebecca Gable, the new president of YIP. Take it away, David and Becca. Thanks, Chris, and welcome, Becca. Thank you. We're delighted to have you here and delighted to have this new partnership. Uh, we think very highly of you folks and glad to have a chance to uh, talk to you about what, what you're up to. You are the newly installed president of Young and Vol Philadelphia, heretofore known as YIP. So congratulations Thank on you. that. Uh, I gather you are the the first female president in four years, uh, succeeding Claire Robertson-Craft, who was uh, a guest a couple episodes ago. So give us a little of your own personal story and, and how you got involved in Young Involved Philadelphia. So I grew up in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. I moved to Philadelphia in 2001 to go to Temple University and um, fell in love with everything to do with the city. I knew I didn't want to go back to, to Lebanon. So uh joined um, in a Convention and Visitors Bureau out in Montgomery County, worked there for a number of years promoting tourism in the area, uh, moved on to the Adventure Aquarium in Camden, worked there for about five years, got involved with community activism, um, planned cleanups and tree plantings, it kind of ranged there um, to lots of different community activities. And then uh, about a year ago, I joined the Barnes Foundation. Um, moving back into the city with my work career allowed me to focus on some other volunteer opportunities in the city. Uh, so joined YIP about two years ago, got involved on the committee level, uh, marketing committee, programming, and the advocacy committee. That's great. So you've had an interesting tour of uh, kind of significant cultural assets uh, mm -hmm. here in Philadelphia. Give us give us the, the kind of quick soundbite of what Young Involved Philadelphia is and, and kind of what you hope to accomplish as an organization. It's been around for a while, right? Yes, we've actually, this is our 17th year, so we have quite a long history in Philadelphia here. Uh, young Involved Philadelphia promotes active citizenship and emerging leadership in young Philadelphians. So we focus on three areas. That's engaging, connecting, and representing. So that can take a lot of different forms during the year. It really depends on the committee structure and what they're focused on, what's happening in the city and what's going on around us. Um, but we try to balance entry-level low barrier programs like happy hours, run clubs, and committee meetings that are open to everyone with some higher level 101, 202 programming. That can be how to get involved in your neighborhood organizations. It can be how to set up um, cleaning programs, how to buy a house, why that matters, um, all the way down to our Ward 101 series that started two years ago. So a little uh, kind of an intersection of social, civic, and political all around pitching in to, uh, to make Philadelphia a better place. Absolutely. And it really allows people to find what they're interested in and then escalate up and get more involved into those, those areas. Yeah. So we're, we're talking here today uh, kind of a meta message, if you will, about political renewal. And uh, you, like us, have seen this incredible upwelling of activism, willingness to get involved. Uh, I know, you know, one of the things that the Committee of 70 worked on with, with YIP was that how to run for office thing right after mm -hmm. the election where we packed the Painted Bride with 275 people. Just astounding. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on where this activism is coming from and maybe more important, wh where it's headed and how does that align with, with YIP's 
purpose and mission. So after the Born to Run event that we co-hosted in November, we did a survey and 61% of the survey respondents said they wanted to get more involved in local civics. Yeah. And an additional 30% of those people said that they were considering a run for office. Wow. So from the comments in that survey, we tried to identify additional themes. So we've had another event called Born to Run 2.0, which was called Building Your Base. And that was focused on community engagement. So how to work with your community organizations or other organizations around you, how to get petitions signed, things like that. That was a panel format. So the nuts and bolts of actually jumping into the pond. Right. And then from there, we did another survey, and 87% of those people said they were considering getting more engaged in their community. And from those topics, we're looking to plan, continue to plan these Born to Run events. Um, The the next steps are really... Has Bruce Springsteen commented (laughs) on your use of Born to Run? Not yet. Are you waiting for the lawyers to show up and knock on your door? phone is always on and right next to me, so I would love to accept that phone call on behalf of Yip. It'd be great to have him as a spokesperson. Yes. If we can arrange that, that would be pretty fantastic. Um, you know, but it's really the tangible skills. That's what we're hearing from, from people post-event. We've done the 101, kind of the entry-level overview of what it means to run for office and where those low-barrier entry points are. But really, people are looking for the tangible skills that they can that they need. Um, so our next step here in 2017 is to start a civics cafe program. It'll be a monthly event, um, again free at different locations around the city. We want to really spread out our reach a little bit further, and each of those monthly topics will work uh, more like a workshop, and it'll focus on tangible skills that people need if they are considering working on a campaign or running for an office themselves. Is there coffee involved? Is there beer involved? (laughs) We're focusing on the coffee part first, so um, we're really hoping to get people out and give them those skills with the experts who can train them on those things. Yeah. So it's a much more of an up close and personal, almost kind of a consulting and training kind of model. Exactly. Not everyone is comfortable in digital organizing, for example. So um, digital organizing or fundraising. Yeah. I have to ask you, because this is the temptation that I'm sure you run into a lot from people, let's just say my age, that we're endlessly fascinated with the thoughts and hopes and dreams and aspirations of as I say to my kids who are pesky millennials, the pesky millennials. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Probably, uh, as I said, you've, you've kind of heard this riff before, but what do you hope for from, from Philadelphia? What do you expect from Philadelphia? You know, we have this tagline on this podcast that it's about expecting more. Like what could happen or should happen, in, in your view, in the city that would really cement your relationship professional, personal, et cetera, uh, over the longer term? We obviously see that city government isn't reflective of what the city looks like. Um, So long term, we'd love to see more young people, whether you call them millennials or not, in city council and in these positions that they can really make change happen in the city. But that can only happen if we come together and we work together, we look at the power structures that are in place, and they're willing to look at um, ways that people can get involved. Not everyone is um, able to start a fundraising campaign and get 200 grand. So how we can make those things more accessible to the people who are passionate about these things. Um, of course, you can do a lot of a lot of positive work in nonprofits and for-profits in the city, but we really want the, the 
look and feel of Philadelphia to be more reflective of what we really are. Yeah. Um, so that's the long-term dream. How we achieve that is really by providing people with the information and resources, but it also takes the people we're calling. If we're having a DA event, we want them to show up. We want the candidates to show up yeah. um, so that people can learn from it and and ask the questions that we all want to hear answers to. Well, my advice on mic and off mic, Mike, is be impatient and ask for things. Mm-hmm. Ask, you know, raise the level of expectations. So Holly Otterbein, who we interviewed a couple of weeks ago, uh, did a piece in Philadelphia Magazine that captured some of what you said, largely, you know, that there's this onrush of young folks interested in getting involved in the political process. Feels like a great thing. This could actually kind of change the culture of, of Philadelphia politics for the better. But she also took kind of a a backhand uh, at you folks. She called young, involved Philadelphia a bunch of bourgeois do-gooders. Reaction? So there's some fair points in the article. Obviously, we see the low voter turnout and specifically, you know, the roadblocks to engagement um, on the millennial side. But we, as YIP, tend to take a more optimistic view of the people we work with. Um, The people who come to our events, they want to be more engaged and involved. They want to contribute to causes. Um, The surveys tell us that people want more information. We did a government interest survey, and 55% of those people wanted us to program only to Philadelphia and neighborhood issues. They um, They want us to keep it local, muddle through all the headlines. They don't want to be called millennials, and they don't want to be put in boxes, but they want the information and tools to do and and make change, make things happen. So if the real question comes down to how do we get more people, young people specifically involved in the political process, Yip's answer is to program events that give them the information and tools and connections so they can participate with confidence and with purpose. But the way people see us, we're not too concerned about. Yeah. We know that we we do our best to invite all sides when we're having an event like Born to Run. Whether they show up or not um, is, is kind of yeah. on them. But we invite everyone to come, and we try to program towards the people that, that we know are underrepresented. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I give you a lot of credit for your 17-year staying power. Organizations like this can be like mushrooms after a spring rain. You know, they sort of pop up, and then they, they go away. But you know, you folks have shown the the commitment and the organizing ability and the leadership ability to keep this going. But this may be a particular moment in time where that's all going to come come to a head. In the interest of blatant self-promotion, because that's why we're all here, uh, what do you have coming up that might be of interest to our listeners? Yep. So we are planning a district attorney forum. That'll happen at the end of April. So we have a committee meeting um, that meets pretty regularly. So if you are interested in getting involved, um, please go on the website and request more information. Send us an email. Send me an email. Go to the bio page and find our information there. Um, we really need a lot of bandwidth to, to help pull an event off like that for 300 people. I, I should say, and then we'll uh, and then we'll say goodbye. The uh, you know we had a ball with you folks sponsoring in 2015 the uh, council candidate convention. I think we had about 600 people down at WHYY mm-hmm. milling around and talking to to council candidates. I should say the award winning council candidate conventions. That's right. Between the two of us, we walked off with a geek award. That's correct. Uh, which is high praise. It is. Uh, I, I mentioned that at every one of our board meetings. People got a kick out of it. So thanks for being with us, Becca Gable. We're delighted to have this partnership uh, with Young Involved Philadelphia and uh, see what we can do to 
encourage the rest of Philadelphia to expect more. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David and Becca. Actually, the core mission of the Committee of 70 is not limited to producing this scrappy little podcast. Overall, the mission is better politics leading to better government. And not too many tasks are more vital to that mission than doing something about gerrymandering in Philadelphia and across Pennsylvania. 70 is a founding member of the Fair Districts PA Coalition, which is working to get a constitutional amendment passed. The idea is to wrench the redistricting pen out of the hands of Harrisburg incumbents and put it into the hands of the people in the form of a citizens redistricting commission. The impossible dreams. To fight the unbeatable foe. Wait, uh, what sardonic comment exactly is our producer trying to make by bringing in that song about Don Quixote? Could it be that trying to kill the gerrymander is akin to tilting at windmills, a pointless delusional quest that ignores all the facts of modern politics? Well, our next guest is well-steeped in the realities of local and state politics, Yet he recently wrote a column suggesting that the bid to slay the gerrymander is not utterly quixotic. He's Chris Brennan, columnist for the Daily News, the Inquirer, and Philly.com. Welcome, Chris. Well, thank you. So, um, you've been around a long time covering politics here and in Pennsylvania. You've seen this go down a few times before, the whole redistricting, reapportionment thing. Uh, your column suggested that maybe there's something slightly different this time. There's a sliver of hope that things might turn out differently. Well, I'm glad you recognized that it was me because there was optimism in the column, and that is not normally my forte. Uh, I but, fainted dead away over my uh, granola that, that morning. But Yeah, so I've seen this a couple of times, and I've seen it when it gets, it gets rammed through uh, by the legislature and the uh, Supreme Court just sort of waves it on. I've seen it the last time when... It got ran through by the legislature, and the Supreme Court actually called it back and made it slightly less bad. The state map, at least. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then um, now we have this time, uh, uh, and it's a cautious optimism about uh, reforming the way that we redistrict because it seems like the universe is lining up the right way, but we're not there yet. And the one concern I think the people that are in favor of this should have is whether or not you can give a sense of urgency to people for something while telling them it's going to happen in 2021 right? when it's 2017. Right. And that, I mean, it's a complicated process. You have to pass the legislation through two sessions of the General Assembly to get it onto a ballot, to get it approved by the voters, to be in place by 2021, which means that has to start now. That's sort of the 400-meter high hurdles race of politics. So that's, yeah, so that's why all the activism going on right now for something that's uh, a ways away. What has diff- changed in the political landscape from this time, this time from the last time when basically it was a Republican show all the way through both for state districts and congressional districts? On November 8th, a gentleman by the name of Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. I've heard that. And uh, that seems to have lit a fire under just about every pot there is. Uh, And this happens, I think this is coming along for the ride. Uh, And I think the thing that redistricting has going for it is that if you're really unhappy with the way your government serves you, redistricting is a way to solve that no matter what the issue is 
that makes you unhappy. That if you if uh, at the heart of many of our problems is this sort of partisan divide, where our elected officials feel more inclined to reach to their their their, their most dedicated base members. So if you're a Republican you feel pulled to the right to the most conservative end of the political spectrum. If you're a Democrat, you feel pulled to the left to the most liberal end of the political spectrum. And that's because your big fear in a safe district is not the general election but the primary. It's that somebody uh, that people will feel that you're not duty-bound enough to a political ideology that they'll put somebody up against you to run in the primary when I think it's healthier if we have an honest fight in a general election in districts where just about everybody has a chance to win if they run a better campaign. Right. To that point, uh, at the Committee of 70 event last week, uh, the speaker was Congressman Charles Dent from the Lehigh Valley. And he was saying that, you know, it used to be um, the people from swing districts, purple districts like his, uh, were the ones who had to sort of govern scared or legislate scared because, you know, people could come at him from all directions. He says now what's changed in his time in Congress, it's really the people from the fairly safe districts who are sort of scared because they're always scared of that challenge from their far right or the far left. Yeah, and uh, Congressman Dent would know. I mean, he's, you know, a member of the Tuesday Morning Republicans, which is, you know, it's, it is not an extinct species. There are, really are moderate Republicans that are willing to work across the aisle to do the job as it was originally conceived. So one other thing that I've heard it said um, changes the calculus a little bit in the next round of you know census reapportionment and redistricting is the Democrats taking the state Supreme Court. Um, so that does change things. And I'm, I don't want... I, don't want to sound partisan about this. Uh, as I mentioned in the column, um, this is this is a bipartisan problem in that Republicans do this when they're in power and Democrats do this when they're in power. Yeah, just uh, ask Republicans in Illinois or Maryland. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, what we might have is competing branches of government actually making things better if the General Assembly remains in control of the Republicans, but the Supreme Court is in control of the Democrats, and then they have to find some way to work it out. Do you expect uh, there to be a, a liberal um, Democratic effort analogous to the Republican red map uh, effort that um, really turned around the 2010 uh, midterm congressional elections? Do you expect Barack Obama, Eric Holder, and all that to sort of keep it up and bring a lot of outside money in? And if they do, Pennsylvania would be a state where they would do that, I would imagine. I, we would be a ripe target for that. Uh, I do expect some effort at that. I also expect that that will set off a great deal of infighting amongst uh, Democratic organizations and liberal organizations. Uh, just as a matter of history, Republicans tend to be better about getting their ducks in a row and 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 finding a, a joint mission. And on the, the sort of the left side of the political spectrum, this becomes more fractious. Uh, one last factor uh, on gerrymandering I just wanted to get your view on. Um, let's understand that they're moving through the General Assembly now is a proposal to reduce the size of the State House. 
what do you think the prospects are for that? And then how, since you'd have fewer seats to draw lines for, how would that sort of play into this whole gerrymandering? Uh, I, th- I think this is, I mean, I think this is where I have to draw the line at my optimism. I mean, I just, I don't remember ever seeing a politician legislate away his own employment. Um, it could, I mean, if if it actually caught steam and caught fire and and and, and got rolling, it could be really interesting in that I think you have more potential for change in how redistricting is done if there's a larger change in what the districts are. I mean, mm-hmm. if you, I mean, in a way, you could say that there's a potential that uh, we have 18 seats in Congress right now. There's a potential for us to lose one of those. And while it's never good to give up representation in Washington, just losing by virtue of the census one of our seats in Congress changes all the lines. It, I mean, it, you know, rather than tinkering around the edges to increase advantage for the party in power, decrease advantage for the party out of power, uh, I think it actually creates a better chance at more logical lines. That's Chris Brennan of The Daily News, The Inquirer, and Philly.com. Thanks, Chris. A pleasure to be here. Look for his work in the paper and online. Well, that's it for this episode of the gritty, gutty little podcast for people who expect more from Philadelphia. Thanks, as always, to the Wexler Studio at Kelly Writer's House on the Penn Campus for hosting us, and to engineer Zach Cardner. This episode was produced by the tireless and talented Barbara Dundon. Thanks also to our guests Rachel Wall, Becca Gable, and Chris Brennan, and to the Penn and Cairn University students who shared their thoughts with us at the top. Music by The Miners with David Thornburg, the CEO of the Committee of 70, on guitar. Listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or any platform where fine podcasts are purveyed. And strike a blow for the civic good. Tell your Facebook friends and Twitter followers about 20 by 70. Until the next time we organize ourselves to put a do-gooding bug in your ear, remember our motto, expect more Philadelphia.